friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ear. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White. Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. Spring is sprung. It's officially spring, David. Lots of things going on in the world. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Neil. I am as well. It is nice to have spring here and couldn't be better weather for a podcast. So let's talk about some history, David. I'll ask you the question I always ask to start the podcast. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's June 3rd, 1943. And Lord Milne, formerly General Milne, is standing up in the British House of Lords in order to deliver a blistering attack on the government's entire press policy. The thing he most wishes to denounce is their obsession with secrecy. He repeatedly criticizes their willingness to conceal heroic deeds and the ongoing course of the war from the British public in their hunger for the slightest operational advantage by overuse of confidentiality. And he brings up to emphasize his point, an example, a battlefield example of precisely what he's discussing. As he insists, the Germans know what happened. They were there. The army knows what happened. They were there. The only people who do not know what happened are the British public. And this inspiring event, this moment that he argues should be remembered and expounded upon because he feels that it would inspire the people of Britain in this long struggle, was a bitter, hard-fought action which ended with a full 95% of the British unit engaged dead. Well, David, I can see why maybe the government wouldn't want to tell people about 95% casualty rate. That is not very good. What is this action that Lord Milne is so eager to have the British public hear about? Well, let's jump back a few months to early February 1943. The campaign in North Africa is starting to wind to a close. Rommel has lost the famous Second Battle of El Alamein in the Western Desert and the classic clash of tanks, which we all discuss, is over. He's retreated back to Tunisia, his best hideout. So Rommel is the German general and he's been defeated. Rommel's the German general and he's retreated back, but his army has not been destroyed. He's taken a loss. He's not gone. And then another bold stroke by the Allies. They also landed on the other side, coming from the Atlantic. American troops landed in Tunisia proper and advanced over the mountains, driving Rommel back into a pocket. The plan for the year is to wipe out that pocket and then plan the invasion of Italy. But of course, that critical invasion can't begin 
until Rommel's forces in Tunisia have been destroyed, and both sides know it. All right, David, so Rommel is stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Brits have him on one side, the Americans on the other side, and he's stuck in between the two of them. What is the plan to get at him and, and finally wipe him out, David? So the Allied plan is simple. A concentric advance. Every unit surrounding his pocket is to advance as best it can, and they're just planning to drive him straight into the sea and wipe out this German Africa Corps that has been his command. But of course, Rommel knows that that is roughly what is going to happen long before the actual advance begins. So he flies to Italy and in a major conference with other senior German army commanders, decides that the best defense is a good offense. That instead of passively waiting for the allied attacks to reach him, he's going to attack the allies and try and drive them back, hold them off and delay them because his current strategy is that he can't hold his position forever. So everything is about delay. He needs to gain more time for the fortification of Italy. All right, David, this sounds a lot like the classic board game risk. Going to try and get on the offensive here, maybe get some victories and give himself some time so that they can protect Italy, which of course is an Axis power at this point. So David, what options do the Americans and the Brits have here? Is it just a matter of trying to hold on or can they counter this move by Rommel? Well, it will of course vary depending on what units you're talking about. The first attack is actually on Rommel's erstwhile Vichy French allies, who some of whom have switched over to the American side when they realized how overwhelming the American landed forces power really was and joined the Free French. Rommel attacks them and quickly drives them back, but of course the Americans are able to simply accept that French, those French units into their lines. So Rommel's second attack is aimed at the Americans. This is the famous Battle of Kasserine Pass. The Americans are driven into disarray and only saved by the narrow mountain pass at Kasserine that they're able to retreat into and establish a defensive stand. The Americans, of course, will fire the general commanding this debacle and replace him with General Patton. But in the short term, the American advance has been stopped, and Rommel's counterattacking strategy is looking good. And this brings us to his first attack against the British. He wants to pull off roughly the same thing he just did against the Americans, and he's already selected the location he's going to try and do it. Again, a narrow mountain pass in Tunisia at a place called Hunt's Gap. All right, David, and why has Rommel selected Hunt's Gap? Well, he's trying to pull off, again, the same thing he did at Kasserine Pass. He knows that he can't go on a continuous advance anywhere because the Allies might try and lure him away from his own supply base by retreating while letting their other army, because there's always an army on the other side of Rommel, he's surrounded, letting their other army 
rush and try and capture his supply base, leaving his troops, and especially his tanks, which of course need gas in order to move, stranded. So he doesn't want to spread himself too thin here and get cut off from his home base. He's got to kind of push out in small steps that he can defend his back supply line. Exactly. And that's where these narrow passes are useful. If he can drive the allies back into a narrow pass and get them compacted together into a narrow space that he can fill with minefields and artillery, then he can establish a better defensive position in the aftermath of a short attack, which is what he's looking for. Which means that his plan is based on a rapid rush to reach the pass of Hunt's Gap, and then a quick dig in and fortify strategy. But the British have no intention of playing ball with that, and they've already sent a group of small units forward past the pass in order to serve as tripwires to warn them when Rommel is coming so that they can fight him before he can force them into the pass rather than after. So they want to do the fighting out in the open where there's more room to maneuver and less chance of them getting trapped like the Americans were. Exactly. And the action that Lord Milne was discussing is going to revolve around one of these small units sent out on its own to serve as a tripwire to warn when Rommel's forces are coming. It's the 155th Battery of the Royal Artillery, and they've dug in at a small town named Sidi Nazir. So David, the idea with these units is that they're just sort of a small unit, so at least in theory, if they get lost or, or are overrun, it's not a huge loss for the Allies. Of course, it's a terrible loss for the men involved, but the overall force isn't overrun. But it also gives them a chance to know that Rommel's forces are coming so the main force can get ready. They're sort of an advanced scout, but in a defensive mode rather than an offensive scouting thing that we would normally think of. Am I getting that right? Exactly. There's only 135 men in a standard Royal Artillery battery like the 155th. So by the standards of a full Second World War army, that's not a lot of guys. But they are enough to occupy a small town and dig in. And then they've got good communications links back. They've got radios. So they'll definitely be able to report if they're under attack, which will then allow the British to respond with heavier units at a later time. And presumably there's somewhat enough of them to at least slow the Germans down, maybe give them a bit of a fight. Exactly. It's 135 guys. It's not one or two guys in a scouting post with a radio. This is a unit that is expected to stand up for itself, and in particular, a unit that's large enough that the Germans can't try and just, you know, sort of sweep it away, sweep away all of the British tripwire units at the same time so that you don't know where Rommel's coming from, which is one of Rommel's famous tactics from the desert. That won't work here because he would have to scatter so many forces to wipe out each tripwire force. You'd have to send enough guys to know you were going to win 
that he would be dispersed everywhere and strong nowhere. All right, David, how do these guys get selected for this? Do they volunteer? Because it seems like this is not the group I would want to be joining. No, they're a standard artillery battery, and like any other British Army unit, they get their orders, which are to advance to City Nazir and dig in. Most likely, no one stops to explain to the full unit what their specific goal is here, although their commanding officer, of course, would have been told just so that he knew how important it was to send radio messages immediately. It's not a special volunteer kind of duty. This is very standard in many ways. So the 155th Royal Artillery, along with some other units, have been sent out. They've dug in, David. So now they're waiting for Rommel and watching the desert, David. Indeed. And meanwhile, on the German side, Rommel is back in Italy at another high-level conference because, of course, the German general staff is very concerned about the events ongoing, but it's also a deliberate deception. He knows that his movements are tracked, and he's decided that this time the attack is going to go in when he is out of the country because he's hoping that that will mean that the Allies will believe that he wouldn't choose that time to attack, but he trusts his own subordinates, in particular General Hans von Arnim, to handle this battle just as well as he could. And so he's also, before he leaves, organized the plan for the initial attack. He's gotten his hands on the some of the very first Tiger tanks ever deployed anywhere in the Second World War. And he wants them to be the spearhead, a tank-heavy assault force to march in a narrow approach, heading as rapidly as possible for Hunt's Gap, hoping that if he can seize it quickly, he can also trap some of these tripwire forces which have been sent out past the Gap, not only seal off the Gap, but trap those forces away from the main British lines and capture them all. So he does know, David, about the tripwire forces and that there are going to be British forces waiting for him and dug in and ready to communicate back to the main force. He knows that they exist, but he doesn't know about all of the locations where they are. He's just guessing. So when he orders his approach march, he picks a road he hopes won't be too heavily watched. But unfortunately for him, and very unfortunately for the 155th, it's a road that will lead them straight past the small town of City Nazir. So the entire German force, David, is headed, ready to push back the British, and they are on a collision course with the 155th Royal Artillery. What's the first sign, David, of the fight to come? Well, it's February 26th. The German tanks are advancing across the desert. Meanwhile, the British are, well, the main battery is dug in in the town, but they have observation posts of their own on the high ground, a hill not far away. And the observation post suddenly starts reporting dust plumes in the distance, uh, quickly turn into reports of tanks, tanks approaching. The gunners scramble up, rush to their guns, 
The radio men are already hammering out the initial message, reporting the advance, and the CO standing by the radio gets a message quickly sent from the British First Army headquarters offering him permission to withdraw if he feels that that's a feasible option. So he grabs his binoculars and looks to see the German tanks, which were only dust plumes moments ago, but because they're rushing at full speed across the desert, he can already see the tanks individually pick them out. He knows that means they're moving too quickly for his men to retreat on foot, and he doesn't have enough trucks to take away all of his men at the same time. So he decides that trying to flee and leave men behind is not acceptable and orders his men to continue their defensive preparations. So he has the opportunity, David, at least from his commanders to try and retreat, but because of the speed of the Germans, he's not going to do that. He's going to stay and fight his small force just 135 men to fight against this entire German attack. What sort of strength do the Germans have? I should really split this into two. The total Operation Oxhead, which is the German name for this attack, is massive. It has over a hundred armored vehicles, tanks, half-tracks, self-propelled guns, not to mention thousands of infantry, all of them mounted in trucks, all of them part of this mobile attacking force. But the group that's the spearhead that is running into the 155th at this moment obviously is much smaller. It's only a few dozen Panzer IV tanks, less than 10 of the new and feared Tiger tanks, plus maybe between four and 500 infantry altogether are in the camp group, the battle group, which has just stumbled across the 155th and is about to find out because when we last left them, the British knew that the Germans were coming, but the Germans had no idea that there were British anywhere nearby. So, David, what's the first sign for the Germans that they have stumbled upon one of these tripwire scouting defensive positions? So the first sign for the Germans that they've stumbled across a British force is when the British guns, 25-pounder field guns, they're not designed for anti-tank work, but they do have an anti-tank shell just in case, open fire at close range. It's a deliberate ambush. The 155th are veterans. They've fought in actions before. They don't try and open fire at maximum range because they know that giving away their position is to give up a major advantage. And they want to save their fire for the moment when they're going to have the best possible accuracy, when the Germans are close enough that they're going to hit. Three of the Germans' Panzer IVs are knocked out in the first salvo, and the Germans quickly retreat, knowing that they're in a kill zone, but not knowing where the British are. They drop back, and even as they realize 
where the guns are firing from around the town, the Germans, veterans themselves, realize that the British must have an observation post on the top of the high ground and determine that they're going to attack the isolated observation post first. All right, that makes sense, David. A good strategy for the Germans to go after that observation post and some cunning savvy there to figure out that that's a viable option for them. How does the battle play out? Unfortunately, I've already mentioned that the 155th will take heavy casualties. We know that the fighting lasted 24 hours from the German reports of the action. We know that the observation post was wiped out first, and that after that, the Germans attacking the guns repeatedly had several attacks driven off by heavy fire from the British gunners until they finally managed to break into the town. And then, 24 hours after the start of the attack, the battle was over. The Germans had lost over a dozen armored vehicles in front of Sidi Nazir. They'd lost hundreds of troops, at least. But the British 155th Battery Royal Artillery, which started the day with its standard complement of 135 men, had nine survivors. Nine survivors out of 135 in 24 hours, David. That is just an incredible loss. What was the result? Did the Germans keep pushing on towards the main British army? The Germans attempted to keep on pushing on towards Hunt's Gap, especially since several of the units involved in the operation hadn't even known that there was a fight going on at Sidi Nazir until it was over because it was, as I've mentioned before, a large force overall with only a certain portion of it having run into this tripwire at Sidi Nazir. But the British were, by this point, forewarned. It had been a full 24 hours between the first reports from Sidi Nazir that they were being attacked by an overwhelming German formation to the point when the Germans reached within 10 miles of Hunt's Gap. And they never got any closer than that because the British had, of course, rallied the entire British First Army, called for artillery and air support, and planned a classic defensive action which wiped out almost the entirety of the hundred armored vehicles which the Germans had available in the entire offensive. So it worked, David. The stand by the 155th, though it cost them 126 men, it gave the rest of the army time to get ready, to plan, and to be set when the Germans arrived so that they were able to, in turn, wipe out the Germans. Indeed. The German offensive towards Hunt's Gap was destroyed. Rommel arrived back in Tunisia and attempted another attack at a different portion of the British line. It too failed quickly. And after that, the Allied offensives resumed with the entire overall German strategy of spoiling attacks, of attempting to drive the 
allies back having fallen apart because their efforts to drive back the British army had simply and utterly failed. The British had not been driven back any significant distance. Were the Allies able to move forward, David, fast enough to close in on Rommel and defeat him in time to make that move towards Italy before the Germans have time to fortify Italy? Because that's what Rommel is trying to buy time to do. Well, that's a complicated question. The Allies were able to move faster than the Germans had expected. Rommel's forces were wiped out earlier than the Germans had hoped, and the Allied invasion of Sicily following soon after encountered very little resistance because the Germans on the island were not ready and the Italians there mostly chose not to fight once they realized the Allies' numerical advantage was overwhelming. But farther on in Italy, the German general staff had deliberately decided to start building their best fortifications in Italy farther back rather than right at the front the tip of the peninsula, because they realized that even if the Allies moved faster than they'd hoped, if their farther back fortifications were already built, they would have something they could retreat to. So for the Allies, the Italian campaign would certainly not be a triumphant success in the whole. But on the other hand, it certainly could have been much worse if the Germans had been given as much time as they hoped for, to finish fortifying, especially the toe of Italy and Sicily itself. So David, it's a big win really for the Allies and all because of these men in the 155th Royal Artillery who dug in and acted as a forward warning and also held off the Germans for 24 hours, giving the main army time to be ready for the attack. What's the reaction in Britain, David, when people hear about this later, June 3rd, 1943, when Lord Milne tells them from the House of Lords? Well, on June 3rd, when Lord Milne brings this up, the House of Lords, as is not unusual during wartime, was not in fully public session. The uh, full records of their deliberations were not made immediately available to the British public. But the British Ministry of Information felt it was so important to make sure that the first thing that the British public heard about the battle was not Lord Milne's criticism that it had been declared secret and not widely discussed, that they actually, only two days later, on June 5th, rushed into publication a long news article about the battle so that by the time the temporary restrictions on reporting Lord Milne's speech were over, the full force of the criticism would be deflected. And in Britain, it caught two moods. On the one hand, it was heroic, and people were buoyed up and inspired by the success. But on the other hand, this was a Britain that was already struggling with manpower losses. Conscription was taking a grim toll on the industry of the country even before 
the large losses of the Normandy campaign really started to, and also the Italian campaign, I should mention, really started to deplete the British army in Britain proper. The fact that all of the men had been sent overseas was already deeply noticeable, and reports of a battle with 95% casualties really didn't buoy up people's spirits, even if it inspired them in the struggle, it wasn't a cheerful inspiration, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes, it's certainly a devastating loss, David, but a heroic victory and a true story of courage and heroism. Thanks for telling us. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed this story or would like to hear some more, be sure to follow us on social media at WhenArtThou and like and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review if they let you do so. We always love to hear from people, whether on social media or through reviews or however you want to get a hold of us. David, we like to end with a quiz. And today is and today is World Poetry Day. Did you know it was World Poetry Day, David? I did not know it was World Poetry Day, Neil. So as we are recording this, it is World Poetry Day. And so I have a quiz for us about the history of poems and poetry history. Are you ready? All right, let's do this. And of course, since this is all about poetry, the quiz had to be a poem as well. I'll try to put on my best poetry reading voice. I'm not much of a poet. It is World Poetry Day, and here's what I have to say. There is history of poems and poems about history, and this quiz will help lift some of the mystery. So I hope you don't get many questions wrong. Some poems are short and some are long, of the poems written in Old English, this one stands out as being the longest without a doubt. Well, I'm afraid I won't be able to answer in rhyme impromptu, so you're going to have to accept my answers in prose. And the longest Old English poem, I really am not sure. I only really know one Old English poem, so I'm going to go with Beowulf. Beowulf is the poem we were looking for. At 3,000 lines, reading it can be quite a chore. A poet is a tough thing to be. Which poet died by jumping off a cliff into the sea? Which poet died by jumping off a cliff? Oof, that's a tough one. Certainly, poetry is not always the most uplifting of occupations, but I really don't know. Perhaps one of the famous darker poets maybe of the romantic era somebody like lord byron actually sappho the ancient greek was the poet who met this end now let's move forward in time to the country of england which of their poet laureates was the first and definitely not the worst the first english poet laureate ah i feel like Poet laureates in English have a long history, so some of the more recent poet laureates, like Alfred Lord Tennyson, spring to mind, but I would think that you're not going to find an earlier one than Alexander Pope. Ben Jonson was named the first poet laureate of England in 1616, but it wasn't until John Dryden in 1668 that the position was royally proclaimed by the king and queen. In Wadsworth's famous poem about Paul Revere, 
It was two by the village clock when he, meaning Paul Revere, came to the bridge in Concord Town. Is that how it really went down? Hmm. Now we're discussing the accuracy of a historical poem. That's an interesting change. Paul Revere, was he making his famous ride by, at two by the village clock? I really don't know the details of Paul Revere's famous ride, but given my low expectations of historical accuracy in popular works, all guess no that it was not accurate. It most certainly was not. Revere never made it to Concord. His warning was delivered there by Samuel Prescott. One more question for you to get right. John McRae wrote his famous poem in Flanders Fields after which World War I fight? In Flanders Fields. I should know this. John McRae was a Canadian, of course, so it must be a First World War Canadian battle. And I feel like the poem was fairly early in the war by Canadian standards, so I'm going to guess the Second Battle of Ypres. He wrote it after the Second Battle of Ypres in 1915 in May, and that is all I have to say. And may I congratulate you for saying it all in rhyme. I, for one, am very impressed. I may never be a poet laureate, David, but hey, we got through it. Thanks for playing along. I always enjoy it, Neil. And thanks for listening. 